Theologians have made many attempts to add millions of years into the Bible. And one of those methods is called the gap theory. I want to welcome you to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, and today's session is called The Gap Theory. What is it? Where is it in the Bible? And does it affect biblical interpretation? I'd like to take a detailed analysis of what the gap theory is, and is it biblically valid? Now, what is the gap theory? It is an attempt to place millions of years between the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. In other words, Genesis would read this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we stop, and we place in millions of years, and then we start up again with verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. Now, there are many different versions of the gap theory. The most popular one tends to be the ruin reconstruction version. In this version, God creates everything in verse 1. Then, before we get to verse 2, we add in the millions of years. And then in verse 2, God comes back and begins to recreate everything in six literal days. So the gap theorists do hold to a six-day creation. However, it is a six-day recreation. Now the question is, what was happening in all those millions of years of the time that the theologians are putting into that gap? Well, Weston Fields, who has his PhD in the Bible and also is a professor of classical languages, summarizes the gap theory this way. In the far distant, dateless past, God created a perfect heaven and perfect earth. Satan was ruler of the earth, which was peopled by race of men without any souls. Eventually, Satan, who dwelled in a garden of Eden, rebelled by desiring to become like God. Because of Satan's fall, sin entered the universe and brought on the earth God's judgment in the form of a flood, and then a global ice age when the light and the heat from the sun were somehow removed. All the plant, animal, and human fossils upon the earth today date from this gap or Lucifer's flood. Now, all this supposedly occurred billions of years ago. Now, many hold to this theory, and when they do, they're actually placing the fossil record, the fossils of dinosaurs and so-called ape-men and all the other fossils into this gap. This means Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 contain the story of an original creation, a judgment and a ruination, hence its name, Ruin Recreation. While the verses following that, starting in Genesis 1-3, through the remainder of the chapter, talk about a recreation, the recreation in six little days. Now, why do people hold to this view? Well, the gap theory, again, was just another attempt by Christian theologians to add in millions of years of earth history. Why did they do this? Because they were under the influence that the geologists had undeniable proof that the earth is millions of years old. Therefore, what they did was they used man's opinion to reinterpret God's word. Now, the gap theory can be traced back to the early 1600s, and it was popularized by Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers. The gap theory was also popularized by the notes in several different Bibles. For example, the Schofield Reference Bible had notes supporting the Gap Theory. Dake's Annotated Reference Bible and the Newberry Reference Bible all had notes in them endorsing the Gap Theory. So it became very popular because of notes in the Bible. 
Incidentally, notes in your Bible are not the inspired Word of God, and they can be wrong. Now, those who advocate the gap theory agree that the six days of creation were literal days, but they interpret them only as days of recreation. When God created everything again, such as the animal kinds and then human beings. Now, what we need to do is take a look at this. Let's examine the scriptures that are used by the gap theorists to support their view of a gap. And we'll go through four different scripture references. The first one is the word was in Genesis 1 verse 2. The second will be the word replenish in Genesis 1 28. Then we'll look at the word and in Genesis 1-2. Then we'll look at the words without form and void in Genesis 1-2. Those are some of the main scriptures gap theorists use to promote the gap theory. So let's look at evidence number one. The word was in Genesis 1-2. Now the Hebrew word for was, the root word is hayah. Now the gap theorists retranslate that word to mean became rather than was. So here's the difference. The common way we read this is, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. But according to the gap theorist, it reads this way, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void, indicating something happened. And what they talk about there is Lucifer's flood, a tremendous desolation of the earth by Lucifer, Satan. And that's where they put the gap. So they help support this view by changing the verb from was to became. However, there's a problem here. The Hebrew sentence structure does not warrant the translation became. Yes, the verb hayah can be translated was, and it can be translated became, but it's based on the context, the sentence structure. The sentence structure in the Hebrew warrants the word was and not became. Again, let's go to Weston Fields, who has a Ph.D. in Bible and professor of classical languages, and he states this. Recognized grammarians, lexographers, and linguists have almost uniformly rejected the translation became or had become. Now, let's take a look at Charles Taylor, professor of theology and has his Ph.D. in linguistics. So he understands the language. He makes this statement. It's true that the word sometimes means became, but A, such a translation is rare, and B, when it means became, it is normally preceded by a preposition meaning to, and in this case, it is not. Now, the conclusion on this, on our first piece of evidence, the word was, is that the gap theorists are misusing or mistranslating the language to support their particular view, and we're not supposed to do that with God's word. So let's go to evidence number two now, word replenish in Genesis 1.28. Now that word only appears in the King James Version, the word replenish. So the King James Bible reads this way, And God blessed them, and God sent unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Supporters of the gap theory take this to mean that Adam was told to replenish or refill the earth indicating that some disaster occurred called the gap and everything was destroyed and now Adam must refill or repopulate the earth. However, the Hebrew word used here is male, M-A-L-E, which means to fill, not 
refill. Now, if we take a look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it shows that the word re replenish was used to mean fill from the 13th to the 17th century. After that, the word underwent a definition change. Many words today have undergone definition changes. For example, if I were to say there's a mouse on the table, well, 40 years ago, you might scream, you might think there's some hairy little critter there. But today, if I say there's a mouse on the table, I'm talking about a piece of computer equipment. Or how about the word tweet? That's what birds do. But tweet now means something very computer-wise. We tweet things on the computer. Or how about the word viral? That means to mean you might have some kind of disease. It was something bad. But today it means something good. The message you sent has gone viral. It's all over the internet. Everybody's watching it. Or how about the word spam? Used to mean some kind of mystery meat, but now it means some unwanted email message. So words do have definition changes, and that is what has happened here. The word replenish no longer means fill in the English language. It means to refill. Therefore, is the King James Bible wrong here? No, it is not. Again, the Hebrew word male, which is the Hebrew word used here, means to fill, not refill. That has not changed. But when the King James Bible was written in the 1600s, the word replenish actually meant to fill. Since then, it's undergone a definition change. So the King James Bible is not wrong here. Now, some people do make attempts or appeals to go to the dictionary and get the current word usage. But that does not tell us all the time what the Bible really means here. To really get the correct interpretation, we need to go back to the original language. And that's what we've done here, ladies and gentlemen, going back to the original language, not use modern interpretations or modern definitions. So the conclusion on this evidence, the word replenish, when the King James was written, actually meant fill not refill. This is another use, misuse, by the gap theorists to support their view. Now let's go to evidence number three, the word and, found in Genesis 1-2. And we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. So we're going to focus on the word and here. Can these two verses legitimately be separated by time? Now, the Hebrew word for and here is vol, spelled W-A-W. It's pronounced with a soft V, vol. Now, what does this mean? Well, vol is the name of the Hebrew letter which is used as a conjunction here. And it can have a lot of different meanings. It can mean and, but, now, then, and it can have several other meanings depending on the context and how vol is used. Now, in this case, it is used in what we call the vol disjunctive, which means verse 2 simply adds information to what's already there in verse 1. In other words, it's helping explain a previous condition, not adding anything new. A distinguishing feature of vol disjunctive is that it is formed by the conjunction vol followed by a non-verb, which is the case here. So this is definitely a vol disjunctive. The conclusion we have on this, then, is this. The first two verses cannot be separated in time 
Because, see, verse 2 in Genesis 1 does not talk about some new condition. What it is talking about is it simply adds more detailed information to verse 1. So it is not a new condition, meaning it was put into chaos. It's adding information to the first verse, not anything new. So once again, the gap theorists, their interpretation of the language is incorrect. Now let's go to the fourth evidence, the phrase without form and void found in Genesis 1-2. Now in the Hebrew language, without form and void, we're talking about the Hebrew words tohu and bohu. Now Weston Fields, again PhD in Bible, professor of classical languages, makes this statement. Bohu, always used in the Old Testament in parallelism with tohu, is defined by Brown, Driver, and Briggs to mean emptiness. Now, Brown, Driver, Briggs, one of the most popular lexicons out there. Those are books, dictionaries put together by Hebrew scholars. And the most popular ones talk about this meaning emptiness, not destruction. Now, the word bohu actually appears three times in the Old Testament each time in a different context. Let's take a look at all three of those. In Genesis 1-2, it is used to describe the primeval earth or the starting condition. In Isaiah 34, verse 11, it's concerned with the destruction of the wall. So therefore, it is dealing with something destroyed. And then in Jeremiah 4:23, it's talking about a leftover state from being plundered by the enemy. But see, the context is what determines the intended meaning here. And in Genesis 1-2, the context does not warrant destruction. But what it's talking about is the initial starting conditions of the earth. So Genesis 1-2, the context simply indicates the earth had no structure as of yet. It was unformed, meaning it had no shape, and was comprised of only the basic elements of earth material. When we read the Bible, it tells us the earth started as a watery mass. And since water has no shape, we get the words without form. See, it makes sense when you read the Bible and don't add anything into it. It's very much like having a potter who starts with a lump of clay, has no form, and each day begins to mold it and continue to mold it until it becomes the final product. That is exactly what is happening here. God created the earth empty to start with. Then each day he continues to create something new until he gets to the finish of his creation. Weston Fields again, PhD in Bible professor of classical languages, makes this statement. The lexicon in no way lends itself to the interpretation of something destroyed in Genesis 1-2. On the contrary, it explicitly states that the Bohu refers to the primeval earth condition. And thus, the original condition in which earth was created. There is no implication whatsoever within the word of any reduction to that condition. In other words, we've seen several evidences now. The word and, we saw that, vo, says these two verses cannot be separated in time. On, without form and void, do not indicate destruction. They indicate emptiness from the beginning and that God continues to create until it's full and he's finished his creation. See, a major problem with the gap theory is that it places the fossil record 
into this large gap. In other words, it places the entire fossil record before Adam. And since the fossil record is a record of death, decay, struggle, and destruction, that means the gap theory teaches death before sin. And if that's what we're teaching, we've just undermined the whole foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there was already death and decay and disease before sin, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Are we not blaming God now for all of this? See, there are some major implications of the gap theory. Let's take a look at a few more. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God finished his creation. He looks back on his entire creation and calls it very good, meaning perfect. According to the gap theory now, which places all those fossils before Adam and Eve, the gap theorists are now teaching that God's very good or his perfect includes dead things, includes an entire record of death and destruction. That's what the gap theory teaches because that's where the gap theorists put the fossil record. Also, we have a problem with Mark 10, verse 6. In Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus Christ makes this statement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is talking about man and woman, Adam and Eve being on the planet from the beginning of the creation. Not a recreation, but the creation. The gap theorists are telling us the words of Jesus Christ are incorrect, or they must retranslate the words of Jesus Christ. So now we've seen the gap theory teaches death before sin. It teaches God's very good includes death and decay. And the words of Jesus need to be retranslated or they're wrong. But then we have another one, Exodus 20, verse 11. And there we're talking about the fourth commandment, and it makes this statement. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. The commandment teaches that creation took place in six literal days. That means there is no room for a gap in there. And then there's a major problem with the gap theory and the Genesis flood. See, the gap theory always must teach that Noah's flood was a local flood. Why? Why can't the gap theorists have a worldwide flood? Well, see, the gap theorists put the fossil record before Adam and Eve. They put the fossil record before this alleged recreation. Now, if the fossil record was formed during Lucifer's flood, then what did the flood of Noah do? Sadly, it relegates the fossil record to the supposed gap. Now, the supporters of the gap theory have removed the evidence of God's judgment on an evil world in Genesis. That means that if God's judgment has no observable evidence, then what are we to make of the flood? Well, the only way to teach the flood then, if it left no evidence, is to say the flood had to be a local flood. However, when I read Genesis chapter 6 and 7, it clearly teaches there was a worldwide flood. Let's take a look at some of the words used. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 17, it states this, Destroy from under heaven all flesh in which the breath of life, everything that is on earth, shall die. Now let's take a look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 4. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Verse 11, the great deep were broken open. Verse 11, 
rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17, the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Folks, this was a large vessel, about one and a half football fields long. Local floods don't lift vessels that large. Verse 19, all the hills under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 23, only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This does not sound like a local flood. If this is a worldwide flood, folks, where's the evidence of God's judgment? You see, because the gap theory is put, the, the fossil record in the gap of millions of years before Adam and Eve, that means that flood, Satan, Lucifer's flood, is the judgment. What did God's flood do in Genesis? Nothing. And it could not have been a local flood. The Bible does not describe it that way. Then there's the fossil record. Facts about the fossil record. Most fossils are found in sediments laid down by water. Sounds like a flood. Marine fossils are found high up on the mountains, on every mountain range on this planet. And fossil graveyards imply a large water catastrophe. Did that all happen in Lucifer's flood or the Genesis flood? See, it happened in Lucifer's flood. Then what do we make of the Genesis flood? We have to relegate it to a local flood because, ladies and gentlemen, a worldwide flood would leave a lot of evidence. Now, in addition to the flood and no observational evidence for the Genesis flood, we also have to take a look at something in the book of Matthew. Matthew 24 states this, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, if the Genesis flood was a local flood, not a full judgment, then what are we to make of the end times judgment? Will that only be a partial judgment there also? Now, gap theorists also tend to ignore all the scientific evidence for a young earth. There's much scientific evidence for a young earth, but yet they will not use that. They're going to the world to get their answers. For example, carbon-14 and dinosaur bones is powerful evidence dinosaurs haven't been dead that long. Not millions, but only a few thousand. Carbon-14 and coal and diamonds indicates these are very young. There's not enough sodium in the oceans for billions of years. Helium and radioactive rock shows things are not that old. Short-lived comets show this galaxy can't be that old. And then the gap theorists tend to ignore the assumption radiometric dating. See, all those dating methods are based on assumptions and have been shown to be inaccurate. So the gap theorists are using the world's faulty scientific evidence or their interpretation of the evidence to change God's Word. And then, again, we have the Bible, all the conditions in the Bible, the six days of creation, Mark 10, verse 6, dinosaurs live at the same time as man. See, the Bible does teach that. In Genesis chapter 1, day 6, God made the land animals the same day He made Adam and Eve, and dinosaurs are land animals. See, what are the gap theorists going to do about that? They're going to have to change day six now. Douglas Kelly, Ph.D. in systematic theology, makes this statement. Nevertheless, it, meaning the gap theory, is not a fair and straightforward reading of Scripture, nor does it supposedly reconcile the biblical picture of origins with scientific naturalism. The gap theory should serve as a model of what Christians should not do in their legitimate desire to speak biblical truth into a world held in the tight grip of humanistic premises. 
The major problem is that it reads into Scripture what is not there. So let's do a summary of the gap theory. It misuses the language to support their particular view. It undermines the gospel of Jesus Christ by putting death before sin. It makes God's very good include death and decay. It makes the Ten Commandments, commandment number four, wrong and have to be reinterpreted. It teaches a local flood rather than a worldwide flood. It teaches a recreation which is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. It contradicts the words of Jesus in Mark 10, verse 6. It undermines the authority of Scripture by elevating scientific evidence above the plain reading of God's Word. It attempts to compromise God's Word with false science. So, final analysis. Too often, church leaders are willing to change God's Word based on mere interpretation of scientific evidence. They're listening to the world and preaching what I call consensus theology. Whatever most people believe, that's what they're going to teach from the pulpit. Ladies and gentlemen, we need men in the pulpit as well as Christian leaders who are unashamed to be sanctified or set apart by the teaching of God's Word. We need Christian leaders with courage, honor, and commitment to teaching God's Word. Now, if you agree with this final analysis, then you might consider sponsoring someone in your church to attend our five-day Creation Apologetics Teachers College. This will set people straight. They will learn the truth of God's Word. And if you want to find out more about how to attend our five-day course, you can go to our website, creationtraining.org, or you can email us at info at creationtraining.org. So if you're interested in getting someone in your church trained about the truth of God's Word, consider sponsoring them to attend our five-day course. Thank you, and God bless. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear.